Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. And here is CBS Senior Business Analyst Jill Schlesinger. Jill, uh, the figures show that inflation is, in fact, starting to uh, eat away at people's savings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we saw the savings rate before the pandemic at 8.8%. That was in 2019. Then that rate went sky high. When we were all home, there was not a lot of money to be spent. And we saw actually a record high rate of the savings uh, level for the United States, 34% in April of 2020. Okay, that was not sustainable. But what we did see is that that extra stimulus checks, the extra unemployment benefits, it did help U.S. households build up $2.7 trillion in extra savings through the end of 2021. But as you rightly point out, with prices starting to surge in 22, that number went down pretty amazingly. In fact, we saw a lot of people have to eat into their savings. And then also we saw the savings rate drop. We are now at 4.7% for the personal savings rate, obviously lower than that pre-pandemic 88 now, is this is this cause for concern? Is this is this leading to another credit collapse, or uh, is this normal? I don't think it's um, a, a collapse. I think that we should pay attention to this. A couple of things that I would point out. Uh, when we look at the amount of savings, it's okay if we spend down some of that extra savings as long as the people who need it most are rebuilding that savings as they can. But I think there's a somewhat worrying sign that credit card debt is accelerating in a pretty big way. And we saw that in the last quarter of last year, we saw credit card balances increasing by $61 billion in the fourth quarter. It was the largest observed in the history of this series. It goes back to 1999. And so when I think about that, I think, hmm, what's happening? The lower half of earners really has already gone through their savings. They are starting to rack up credit card debt to pay their bills. And a lot of this is happening for younger Americans, the millennials. Um, I was just looking this up that uh, Vantage scores another one of those credit scoring agencies. They said the average credit card balance for millennial borrowers was up 26 percent from three years ago. So that's a lot. And I'm worried about those folks because, you know, if that student loan forbearance case goes away and you don't get $10,000 or $20,000 of your student loans wiped out and you have credit card debt, that could be really problematic. Right. Let's talk about that because that is a, a distinct possibility. What would the economic consequences be if uh, suddenly people who thought their loans were forgiven and were spending as if they were forgiven finally dis- uh, learn they're not forgiven? Well, I mean, on a personal level, it can be pretty rough because some of these loan payment amounts are quite high. Um, I know for most, like the vast majority, we're talking a couple hundred dollars a month. But, you know, if it's a couple hundred dollars a month and prices are still high, that is going to cause some financial distress. I think that overall for the economy, there could be a little bit of a, a continued pullback in spending, especially among those student loan borrowers. And that could slow down economic growth. And all of this is to say that we have about a six-month period here where I think there's an opportunity to make a dent in both replenishing your savings and paying down your credit card debt because the economy is still strong enough that there are a lot of jobs out there. People are still getting raises. And so if possible, I am encouraging people to kind of scour through their spending and just free up a little bit of money automatically directed towards your savings automatically increase the amount of money you're paying to your high interest loans like credit cards and try to get that habit in an 
like it's basically you're trying to change your habit, but you're using technology to help you just make it automatic and you don't have to think too hard about it. Is it fair to say that inflation is proving tougher to control than the Fed was thinking? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think they knew this, um, and I think this is part of their their real concern around inflation. And, you know, there's a lot of economists who are saying, like, the Fed needs to stop and they can't keep raising interest. That's true. The Fed um, has gone pretty quickly now once they realized inflation was a problem. But they, there are signs that inflation is higher than expected and sticking sticking around longer than expected. And I would also point out a fact that I think is important here, and that is that we kind of thought the housing market slowing down was going to really detract from economic growth. Okay, but it's weird. All of a sudden, activity is picking up just a little bit. And there is some thought that the housing market may have already bottomed out. And if housing starts to kind of reaccelerate with mortgage rates at six percent, that's going to keep economic growth pretty strong, and it's going to probably make the Fed's job a lot harder. So I would just point out that it is harder to control inflation. This is why it is pernicious, and people were very much worried that the Fed started too late in the process. Anything that we can do collectively to help, like, you know, just suddenly become twice as productive as we were yesterday? I don't think it's a productivity thing, but I do think, you know, the the easiest way is to uh, stop spending as much money. You know, like if you said to me, how do we bring airline prices down? Yeah. Stop traveling. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, like it's not just you're going to spend less on travel. It's just that, you know, there that's like a real supply and demand moment there. Right. Because when everybody's saying, like, I don't care, I just want to go away and spend the money, then flight prices, you know, airline fares stay high. But look, inflation is one of these things. It is pernicious in the way that it just does stick around. I think the Fed's big problem is not so much with eggs or oil, but it is with services. And the service part of this economy is seeing those prices stay higher. If you go think of it this way, if you went to a barber or hairdresser and they raised the cost of your haircut, they're not saying like, oh, Um, I'm going to drop that price when the economy slows down. Chances are those prices are going to stick with us. And so those sticky prices for services really are the problem for the Fed. Senior business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Have you noticed the avalanche of drug commercials? And these are commercials for prescription drugs, which only your doctor can let you take. So I thought we would page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. So, Dr. Cohen, uh, well, well, I mean, you've seen these commercials. What do you think about them? So, frankly, last weekend I was watching TV for an hour and I suddenly noticed... Wow, there's all these commercials. And actually, I rewound the show and counted there was five different drugs being advertised in a one-hour time slot. And I thought to myself, what's the target audience here? For me as a physician, I'm not paying attention, and I'm certainly not going to listen to an ad on television to guide me in what medications I'll ultimately prescribe to my patients. And then when you listen to the commercials themselves, are patients really listening to them? Are they walking into their doctor's office and saying, hey, I saw this commercial on TV. Will you prescribe me this drug? 
And the other thing that I noticed was that, you know, when they talk about all the different side effects that these drugs can have, which apparently is required by the FDA, it's the, the side effects are, are alarming and overwhelming. So I sort of wonder, like, who's the target audience and how effective are these these uh, commercials? Well, I think the target I mean, audience, I think that the target audience is older people like me who notice that our bodies are uh, not functioning quite as well as they used to. And if it's for a condition that we think we may have, absolutely. I would bring it up and I say, by the way, Doc, have you heard about Sky Rizzy? Because uh, that's, I mean, all the people who take it look really, really happy despite being very ill. You would actually do that? You would actually walk into the doctor's office and say, hey, I saw this this advertisement on TV. And- well, well, I might not schedule a, a, a visit just for that. But if I was going in anyway for an annual checkup or something or because I, I felt an ache or a pain, uh, yeah. I'd bring it up, and I would. I would I mean, hope that he'd heard about it. Now, now, do you keep up with all the? I mean, when when new drugs come out, do they send? They must send flyers to guys like you, right? Well, there are right. There's a lot of advertising, and the advertising to physicians rather than being direct to consumer is focused on what it is that we do. So, being that I'm in the you know heart field, you know I'll see drugs about high cholesterol or high blood pressure or potentially even diabetes, you know, things like that. And I won't necessarily see flyers for Skyrizi because I'm not, you know, treating black psoriasis. You know, it tends to be more targeted advertising when it comes to physicians. But, you know, it just strikes me because, I mean, in addition to being a doctor, I'm also a patient at times. And I don't think I pay enough attention to these commercials that I would actually walk into the doctor and say, hey, would you prescribe this for me? And the other thing is, is that when you listen to sort of the technical details of the commercials, like one of the commercials, which was for a diabetes medication, said, don't take this drug if you're on a sulfonylurea. Like how many patients actually know what a sulfonylurea is <laughs> frankly how many doctors actually know yeah. what that is well they don't but i'm so, sure but they have to do that i mean those disclaimers have to be there because that's the law yeah i know but it, it sort of makes you wonder about the effectiveness of the commercials obviously they're effective i looked some of this up in 2022 there was 6.86 billion dollars spent on direct to consumer advertising by the pharmaceutical industry on TV. In fact, they spend more money on advertising than they do on drug development and research. So I was surprised to read that. Yeah, well, this could also be part of a pressure campaign to get insurance companies to add these brand name drugs to the formularies so the patients can be reimbursed. Yeah, that, that that could be. It's actually interesting, though. It, apparently, the public isn't as receptive as we might think. There has been research done by the advertising companies, and people have to watch and add 20 to 30 times before the information sticks. So that's why we're bombarded with them, because we're seeing the same commercials over and over and over, so that you may ignore it at first, then you take notice of it, then you may actually pay attention of it. And I guess at that, after the 30th time, you walk into your doctor's office and say, hey, doc, will you prescribe this for me? We're going to continue to to see these because apparently, if you look at just TV alone, there's been 187 commercials for about 70 prescription medications, which have collectively aired almost half a million times since the start of 2018. That's just staggering. It's just staggering. So I'm sure this trend is going to continue. 75% of, of all the commercials on TV are from the pharmaceutical industry. And from what you know of, uh, of, of how they operate, do you feel there's something wrong with that? 
Well, you know, there are only two countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise direct to consumer and the United States being one of them. And most countries feel uncomfortable with it and don't allow it. I don't think it's the right way for decisions about medical care to be driven. I don't think patients should be driving the care. I think physicians should. Now, there may be people who will disagree with that, but if patients are going to drive their own care, it should be based off of knowledge, not off of a commercial. And patients can get knowledge by studying and reading and whatnot, but watching a TV commercial, that's not the right way. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. It is time for this week's edition of Crime and Punishment with Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. And uh, this week, Casey, we're focusing on this horrific beating that happened in uh, Kent in 2019. Well, a few days ago, there was a post on a Kent Police Facebook page about a sentencing that was especially horrific. It was just a terrible case. And you can really tell that it was a case that first responders and people who were at that scene and followed up on that scene will never forget. This happened back in 2019. There was a camp man who attacked his neighbor and he dragged her into his home and he closed and locked the door behind him. The beating left this woman unable to work and, and um, these will be lifelong injuries. And, and some people may be wondering, you know, so why are we talking about such a terrible case now? And there are three people Landon Meyer, who's a Kent police detective and victim advocate, Wendy Ross from our office in King County, and also senior deputy prosecutor Jennifer Phillips. They were some of the many people who worked on this case and responded to it, who really cared deeply about this victim. I think hearing what happened behind the scenes and what led to this sentencing that uh, didn't get media coverage will give people reassurance about the teamwork that, that we see quite often. So let's play this clip. This is victim advocate Wendy Ross, who talks about the the team that worked on this case, which included the senior deputy prosecuting attorney Jennifer Phillips and the Kent police detective Landon Meyer. Throughout the duration of this case, which was quite a long time, the three of us met together regularly. We would go visit the family regularly. We um, gave them faith and hope that the system was going to play out as we told them it would. Yeah, because we, you know, we had the COVID delays as well. Landon Meyer was tireless in keeping this case at the forefront of our mind as well. I mean, as a prosecutor, I could not have kept the victim invested and having any faith in the system without what the detective and and the victim advocate did on this case. And this wasn't a a case where a police or prosecutors or the victim advocate said, hey, I'll get to this when I get back to the office on Monday. It was, you know, from the first hour that this happened, people came together to try to help this woman. And when she was unable to work, they uh, helped her find financial resources through crime victim compensation and also found culturally appropriate food so she could have that through a, a food bank. And here's Jen Phillips talking about how how that scene that people walked into was so brutal. Anyone who responded that day remembers this call. There is such a difference when you see the brutality of brute violence with hands and feet, and nobody could believe she survived. One question that I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have is, what, what was the motivation? What would make a neighbor so brutally attack the person who lives next to them? Yeah. And that's the hard part. There's been a lot of questions about mental illness and possible drugs and a possible uh, hatred because of race or gender. Uh, and there isn't a 
definitive answer. There's not a clear reason of this is exactly why, and we probably won't ever get that answer. Here's Jen talking about that. There was no animosity. There were no prior issues. They were neighbors. They knew each other by sight and name and didn't know a lot about each other. It was just so unexplainable. And that the horrific violence with the lack of any apparent motive was so horrific to so many people. So this was just an uh, unexplained beating. Yeah, it, it's really it's it's hard to imagine somebody could be this cruel to somebody else. And for such a, a random case like this, it, you don't you don't see something like this often. But when you do, it's it's so important to have this great teamwork between Kent Police and the prosecutor's office and the victim advocates. Right. So let's let's get to the sentence. Uh, what what happened to the uh, what happened to the perpetrator? The defense argued that he should be released with the lowest end sentence, and prosecutors argued for the, the high end. Wendy Ross, uh, the victim advocate from our office, spoke on behalf of the victim, and Landon Meyer, the Arkansas uh, police detective, spoke on behalf of her caregiver, and others from the victim's family spoke. Uh, they talked about the, the you know life-altering injuries that that she's facing and will continue to face. Um, and after hearing from those folks. The judge sentenced this defendant to the high end of the range, the high end of what state lawmakers have set for the range. And so it's nearly 16 years. And here's um, Wendy Ross and uh, Jennifer Phillips talking about how they're still in touch with this woman. She knew she had a team behind her. The victim here lost an awful lot. And one of the things that she gained was three people in her life who care about her, and she values that, and we value her and her and her family. Landon has found a way to just make sure that he keeps in touch with her and looks out after her because she she really deserves it. She yeah. was very important to us all. Wow. So there's a. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of personal investment in this. Then there is, and what's unique about this case is I think that it, it's not unique. You see people all the time in our office and with Kent PD and other police agencies caring about this a lot. And they don't do it for the attention or because it's on the news, but it, it is reassuring. And I wish that people could see this just like we see it every day. There's, there's such great teamwork. And even in horrific situations that don't have a clear answer for why it ever happened. There are people who who will come to help you out and stay friends with you and do everything they can to try to say, hey, we're here for you. So this perpetrator goes to jail for 16 years. Um, what happens to him during that time? Does he get treatment? Because I know 16 years is a long time, but eventually he gets out again. And that's a great question. One of the, of the things that the judge ordered uh, is that he undergo an evaluation for his mental health and substance abuse and alcohol use and follow any recommendations there. So that's ordered by the judge saying, hey, you can't just sit in a cell and do nothing. You've got to get these evaluations and whatever the evaluator tells you to do, you must follow those. Yeah. Going back to uh, Wendy and Jen, your victim advocate and your deputy prosecutor, I wasn't aware that you had people who actually did long-term follow-up with uh, with individual victims i figured you were you were too uh, short-staffed for uh, for that kind of follow-up the people who are working with victims and even the prosecutors and the officers too many of them do the because it's such a calling and there isn't the requirement in a lot of cases to follow up like this but they very often do and and uh the work of the victim advocates it's really inspiring to know that there are people who at all hours of the night will go to try to help people who are in the worst moments of their own life. Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thank you. You bet, Dave. Thanks a lot. It's nice. Any notes? 
Any notes? Yeah, you're the king of commentaries, aren't you? No, I think it's great. Yeah, that was good. Good perspective. Uh, it's time for the daily dose of kindness. This one brought to you by Robert W. Baird and Company. It took Lloyd Devereaux Richards 14 years to write his novel Stone Maidens. Now, 11 years after his book was first published, it's finally a hit. It's the number one book in the serial killer thriller genre on Amazon, all thanks to his daughter. Just two weeks ago, Richard's daughter, Marguerite Richards, posted this video on TikTok to introduce the world to her father and his novel. The monster's gone. He's on the run. And your daddy's Here's her dad. Marguerite simply hoped TikTok could help get a few more people to read her dad's work. And the video has since been viewed more than 47 million times. Lloyd went from having almost no sales in nearly a decade to being the author of a number one book on Amazon. Richards joined NBC's Today Show to share their story. I knew how much time he put into it. He'd work all day. He'd come home, have dinner with me and my brothers and spend time with us and grab little pockets of writing. And then when it published, we were so excited. They were so proud of him. And um, over the next 11 years, there wouldn't be much uh, of, a, of a following or readers. And so he was never negative. He always stayed positive. And in fact, he kept writing. And so when he finished the sequel last summer, it touched me because no one had read his first book. Mm. So that broke my heart a little. And I was like, I mentioned to him, like, Dad, what if I made a little video on TikTok? And he didn't know what, as he said, Tic Tac was. <laughs> so um, he kind of just, it just didn't happen. And then when I caught him rifling through his papers in that first video, that's where he wrote the book. I was just kind of going through making a video without him really knowing and I created an account and posted it and no one knew this and uh, yeah just in the hopes that a few people would read his first book that was what I was hoping. Even dads need a little kindness too. I just uh, looked it up on Amazon and Stone Maidens it'll cost you nine dollars if you want to read it. So TikTok can be used for something positive. Absolutely. Let's take on the Dilbert controversy. Here's G. Scott from the Gian Ursula show. The first thing I did was go back to this poll that uh, Scott Adams, the, the creative Dilbert, was responding to. A poll which was conducted by Rasmussen, um, which, which said, do you agree with the, the uh, quote, it's okay to be white? And 72% agreed, including 53% of black people, implying that 47% of black people uh, don't think it's, quote, okay to be white. But my understanding is that the quote itself is somehow code for something, right? The, oh, sorry. The, the, the code? The, 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 the quote, quote itself, it's okay to be white, in quotes. Isn't that associated with the okay gesture, which is also associated with something? Oh, white supremacy? Oh, you know, white power? Oh. I, you yeah. know what? I don't know. There's a lot of codes and stuff going on. Let me just simplify. Let me just say this before we get into this topic. Um, if someone came up to me and asked me a question and said, hey, let me ask you something. Yeah, what do you got? Is it okay to be white? They're gaslighting you. Uh, first of all, I'm going to look around. Yeah. Right? And then after I can't find any cameras, I'd assume I'm on camera. I'm going to say, sure. I mean, I guess. <laughs> 
Would yeah. you want to be white? I, what? Like, 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 this question is so confusing anyways. Yes, it's okay to be who you are. We talk about this all the time. This Scott Adams dude, um, like, and I came in here and said it this morning. I'll say it again. Nobody, well, you shouldn't be shocked. This guy has said things in the past in his cartoons where he has been offensive towards black folks, been offensive towards the LGBTQ community, been offensive towards the trans community. But he has been able to hide that with, oh, no, 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 this cartoons, right? And so sometimes these folks out there, they like to hide behind those things. And there's folks who know, like, uh, no. That it's racist. No, that is very offensive. You can't keep doing that. To which I say, sometimes in this country, it's okay to be a little racist. But when you come out and you're full time racist, yeah, that's when people say, okay, we have to do away with this. Where Scott Adams has been doing this for some years now, but this is the first time he's come out and done this way. And I sent to my good buddy Colleen over the weekend. I said, now here comes the next part. Now let's wait for the folks to come and defend this. Who came out first? And who comes out first? <laughs> Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. Shocker, He's right? A free speech guy. Free speech, yeah. Unless you say something mean about him on about Twitter, him. then yeah. he'll block yeah. you. Well, yeah. let me, let me, <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but let me ask you this. Mm. I mean, there are always going to be people who hate other people for whatever reason. I mean, when I was doing a talk show every day, I... I got all, all sorts of stuff. It's nothing to do with the race, supposedly. I don't know. Yeah. But I, how can you stop? If somebody hates you for your race, how do you stop them? And you know, you're, you're not going to change their mind. You just have to hope that they're not going to do something because of that. But if they sit there harboring hate towards people, they're going to do it. I don't. I, I I agree with you. I actually agree that if people are going to hate you because of your color of your skin or your background, your religious affiliation, that's going to happen. Here's the problem, though. The problem I have is when there are organizations that continue to uh, let them go forward with their platforms and spew that hate out. That's when it would be a problem. So in the case of uh, Scott Adams if publications and all of these news uh, media affiliates, if they kept him on and said, well, yeah, he shouldn't have said that. And he's going to go to some diversity training and he's going to give an apology. And, but we need to keep this person on because you ready for this? <laughs> it makes us money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you have companies that continue to do that, that's where I have the problem. Because the reason why I believe we have this environment, like, I don't think 20 years ago, people were coming out and just flat out doing this. But we live in a climate now where it's kind of like, oh, well, it's not so bad. It's okay to come out and do those things because there's someone like uh, Elon Musk that's going to come and justify those hateful things being said. But to your point, Dave, you're right. You can't control how someone feels about you if they hate you. But the free market can. But the free market (laughs) can. You want to call it canceling. It's literally the free market. The customers reaching out to the Seattle Times saying, 
I don't like what this racist guy said. I don't want to see his cartoons. Yeah. I will stop subscribing. And the Seattle Times went, great. This doesn't match our values anyway. Bye, Dilbert. So R- really, and that's, let the free market take care of racism. That, that's really what the whole quote the cancel culture yeah. really doesn't. It's the free market yeah. that decides. And if the free market would just be like, you know what? We're OK with Scott Adams doing that. We'll continue to keep our subscriptions. I'm probably is a good idea that they might have kept him on. Yeah. yeah. Generous Lenatic, did I hear that Ursula's back? She She's is. She's back. Yeah. yeah, okay. Nine o'clock on Cairo News Radio. And time to get caught up on what the legislature's been doing. Our legislative correspondent, Matt Markovich, has chosen a couple of issues to highlight this morning. One of them is the governor's $4 billion housing proposal. And the other is what are the rules on restraining kids in school? Matt, uh, tell us about the housing levy, first of all. Well, happy Monday morning, Dave. It's uh, day 50 down here in Olympia of a 105-day session, so we're almost halfway through it. Big big change now because all the bills that are going to be talked about pretty much have to be discussed on the House floor, and they've got two weeks to in the House and Senate to move all their bills out to the other opposing chamber. And like you said, the housing levy is a big deal. The governor's been talking about this for a couple of months. This is a $4 billion levy, and since it's it's outside the constitutional debt limit. It has to go to the vote of the people in November if it's going to be approved. But there are there some cracks in the Democratic process, or I should say the Democrats, uh, uh, in favor of this type of proposal. Now, Speaker of the House, Democrat Lori Jenkins, a very powerful person, sounded like yet, uh, late last week that she wasn't entirely sold on the plan. I don't know that it is rising as a preferred strategy, but I think people are still trying to figure out what is the strategy. So one of the things I really give the governor a lot of credit for is putting out there a strategy that could be used to really build more housing in the state, which we know is needed. Now, she didn't say what other strategies there are, and I haven't heard of any other strategy. She went on to indicate there may be other options, though. And so at a certain point, we're going to have to decide, is there another idea that we think would is more fiscally sound or it uh, provides more opportunity or whatever the you know critiques may be? Is there another option or is this really the option? I think we're way too early on to know whether or not this is the option that's uh, going to go. Well, well, what is this? Uh, what kind of housing are we, we building? Is this state owned housing? Is it going to be loaned to private developers? What's the uh, how does this program work? It, well, it's a four billion dollar loan that the go, the the state is going to take out to build the housing. So yes, the taxpayers are on the hook for paying for this housing uh, to get it going. Um, it's a lot of housing, and it's intended to house the people who have no housing right now and sheltered. Mm-hmm. It started with the people who are living along the highways. Uh, that's kind of the most visible um, area to build housing for people who are living along the highways or in other places outside. So that's the intent of it. But for the Speaker of the House, a very powerful Democrat, to start saying, eh, maybe there might be some other options we want to look at. That's a little uh, chink in the armor there for the governor there. I thought that, that, that we had agreed that if you don't fix some of the underlying problems like drug addiction, you can put somebody into a house, but it's not going to stick. 
Well, that's an argument out there that people say you have to have housing, uh, drug addiction, and mental health and behavioral health services. They all have to be combined. So this is just one big pillar of a of a to trying to solve this huge problem. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, the it's a it's it's one of those bills, Dave, that's going to be very late in the session. It's the big heavy lift, and uh, so it, you know, for but but for her to indicate, eh, you know, that's that's not good. That's not good. Um, but you know, we're talking about the legislative process i said it was day 50 so almost halfway there i thought well what what, we asked the legislators how are things going now representative joe fitzgibbon the democrat of the house majority leader says meeting in person for the first time in two years has actually helped communication between both sides being in person has really contributed to i think some some good work i don't think we've had a lot of big blow-ups which is good that doesn't mean that there won't be some to come particularly as we head into floor action and so the Democrats are saying, hey, if things are going fine, because, again, they're the party in power here, they can basically vote everything in if they wanted to. Um, J.T. Wilcox is the House Republican leader, and he's just not as cheerful. There's clearly no appetite on the part of the majority for taking the historic surpluses over the last few years. No interest in broad-based tax relief. Apparently no interest in rolling back the long-term care tax. Yeah, and that was a bit. Nobody's talking about the long-term care tax, yeah. which... I thought it was going to be a huge issue this year. No one liked it last year, and there's literally been no talk about it. Uh, and I've been, there's no legislation to roll it back, uh, mm-hmm. even even stuff that was proposed by the Republicans. So that was a surprise. Um, and he's talking about the tax revenue that this, they entered this year with a four billion dollar tax surplus, and the Republicans and some Democrats say, "Well, maybe we, we should have some targeted tax relief." Yeah, uh, we're not seeing a lot of it right now so uh, so that's kind of where we sit right now with the legislature um, things are progressing and we're going to start entering this period where they're going to really start voting on the big bills all right so school isolation uh, outline now the school isolation this is we've talked about it before but this is kind of it came down to a committee vote right down party lines where the democrats are for this legislation the republicans against so basically it would prevent schools from um isolating problem students or invoking some sort of discipline on them uh and so what i brought this up is because again this is we're starting to see more party line votes and here's one where it went party line republicans like representative mike Steele voted against the bill We need to address the concerns that we're hearing from parents, from teachers, because we cannot create a vacuum where we take away all the tools for them to respond to these very real situations and put nothing in place to give them the tools they need to be successful. As did Republican Representative Skyler Root. He also was voted against it. Students need to know that there is going to be an intervention that happens. And I am concerned that kids that are going through our K-12 system and are allowed to act out in that way, we're in a way training them that there aren't consequences. So this is focused on students who are repeatedly disrupting uh, classes by their behavior? Correct, correct. And and uh, what to do in that situation. So right now, the bill basically says, okay, we're going to offer training to teachers. Doesn't really specify a lot of stuff on what they need to be trained for. And it, and it, it immediately takes effect. So as Representative Mike Steele said, that if you pass this bill, then the teachers can't do what they have been doing, which is almost like a timeout. They, they remove everybody out of the classroom, leave that one student in that classroom with the teacher. They don't put them in another room or kind of put them into restraint. They, the, the, the part of the bill is you can't restrain the students, but there's no tools there. And that's been the argument against this bill. But 
it's a it's become one of the more controversial ones because what do you you need to take care of the students for everybody in that classroom safety but how do you do that and that's not really addressed in this bill and there was uh, the ticket sale issue yeah I, I thought I'd just say uh, we have a little bit of time here you know so uh, there's a bill that basically passed it's going to moving through that establishes that every ticket seller a licensed reseller or a, a manufacturer or a marketplace not manufacturer but a marketplace has to get a license with the state to sell a ticket like this is all based on what happened to Taylor Swift and that ticket debacle with uh, Ticketmaster but what I thought was interesting is that again this is another a bill that went down party line votes the Republicans voted against it the Democrats voted for it and Republican Chris Corey used a lot of Taylor Swift titles to convince lawmakers to vote against the bill. You know, we knew this bill was possibly going to be trouble when it walked in. While we understand concert fans have had negative ticket sales, including Taylor Swift concerts, these fans were frustrated at a nightmare dressed like a daydream when trying to get tickets. And we understand that fans felt like industry had bad blood with consumers. Uh, Today we're going to ask for a no vote, and we don't mean to be mean, and we hope Rep Reeves can shake it off. Please vote no. (laughs) So So what does that mean? What happens now? Anything? Um, What... Yeah, it is. It's going to go forward, it is, and okay. now it's going to go to a vote of the house onto the house floor, and so they're going to debate it. And it's there's no companion bill in the Senate, so basically it's just tightening the screws on ticket sellers in the state. There are already licenses; you have to get certain business licenses to be a reseller, but this is a different sales, uh, a different license from the state to do this. Okay, I hope. Taylor Swift has an, enough songs to keep the debate going. Um, I think she does. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> or we're going to find another artist that right. has uh, complained about this. Matt Markovich, thank you, Matt. 835, Seattle's Morning News, and we have Washington Governor Jay Inslee on the line. This is remarkable timing because uh, Governor Matt Markovich was just on saying that the Speaker of the House, Lori Jenkins, had some doubt about your $4 billion housing proposal uh, going through this year. So can you tell us exactly what that would pay for? You bet. Well, uh, as we know, we have a scourge of homelessness. And it would pay for a, a multiple of systems to be able to provide additional housing for people. We have about 25,000 people who are unhoused in the state. And over a period of six years, it would take a huge bite uh, out of that through multiple systems of housing from all kinds of different kind of shelter to home ownership for some low income, uh, income people. And it would be married with, and I think this is a really important point. It's actually, I heard you talking about this. That's why I called you this morning. I appreciate you talking about it. Uh, really important to realize it is married and it has to be married with chemical addiction treatment and mental health because a large uh, percentage of our unhoused people have chemical addiction problems. We've got to get them off of drugs. I believe we're going to pass a bill to allow us to do that uh, this year. And so this is not just one thing for homelessness. It's multiple things. It is uh, increased mental health treatment. It is increased chemical addiction treatment and it's additional roofs to, to live under. And that's really important. The longer I'm in this, the more I understand we just don't have enough housing, period. We've had about a million Plus, people move in in the last decade, but we've only built about 350,000 housing units. Okay, so would this be run by the state, or would this money be given to local agencies? Who would be responsible for building the housing and making sure that the people who are put in the shelter are are prepared to live independently? 
a variety of mechanisms. One would be contracts with nonprofits, for nonprofits to contract with private developers to build the housing and run the operation to make sure that the people uh, get what they need to really become permanently sheltered, including chemical addiction. For instance, over in Spokane, we bought a hundred uh, a room motel and converted it into a, a space, and they now have four uh, mental health professionals and three chemical addiction treatment people on site to make sure these people get clean and make sure that they get the treatment they need so they can be long-time sheltered. Others would be kind of uh, a spectrum. You know, when people come off the street, the first thing they need is to figure out to get used to being inside. I know this sounds a little bit strange, but it's true. And so they need a lot of support when they first come in. Then eventually get where you're totally independent. You're cooking for yourself. You've got a little apartment and a place that you would be built uh, by a nonprofit or a for-profit. And this is important, too. I'm advocating to open this up for uh, private contractors to do this work as well. So it is a, a spectrum of, of uh, methods because we need to do that because not all homeless people have the same the same challenges. But I do, I do want to stress this issue of it's not chemical addiction or mental health or housing. It's got to be all three. It's and, and I'm, I'm, you know, basically, and we got to go big so people can go home. Right. Now, I, uh, is this going to be accompanied by any kind of guarantee that the tents will be gone? Because we've heard, I mean, you, you know this, 30 years we've heard promises and the tents are stubborn. In some cases, that's, that's the best people can do. In some cases, people just don't want to go indoors. Can you guarantee that if something like this is passed, that that will be the end of people camping along rights of way, camping in parks, camping in neighborhoods, camping in doorways? No, listen, Dave, that's, I know it's kind of a rhetorical question, but, you know, I'm not going to guarantee you'll never see a tent out by, you know, uh, Washtukna somewhere. I can't do mm-hmm. that. But what I can tell you, our policy is no one is going to be allowed on our right-of-ways. Repeat, no one is going to be allowed to live on our right-of-ways when they are given an option uh, uh, under this proposal, and we're doing that right now. We are not allowing people, if we've got a place for them to go that has some degree of privacy where we're, they're going to be long-term off the streets, they have to go. And that's why we've removed 17 or we've totally moved about 10 by now, I think, of these encampments up and down I-5. And we've got several more to go. We've got several that are problematic right now. We're intensively managing those, and we're, getting, uh, we're converting some motels to additional space to get them off the right-of-way. This is not acceptable in the state of Washington to have people living on our right-of-ways. And, and so is it, as soon as we have that, they have to go. And is it, do the, does the law allow you in uh, cases where people need treatment but refuse treatment and have become a public nuisance, can they be compelled to enter into treatment? Uh, in a sense, yes. What I think the legislature is going to do is to pass a law that will continue to have a criminal sanction for possession of these drugs and people will have to go into treatment or they're going to be uh, criminally sanctioned. And and I'm quite confident that there will be a continued criminal sanction to get people to go criminal justice training centers. Uh, We have to have a compensation structure for nurses where they'll come to work. And and all of those needs uh, have to be met. Uh, You know, you have constitutional obligations to do other things other than housing meet these needs. We have a chronic shortage of treatment for people in mental health, which is extremely frustrating. People are having to wait in jails right now too long. 
So we have to build significant hundreds of new uh, mental health beds, which we are in the process of doing. And they are not cheap because when you when you when you create a hospital for people in mental health, it's very very expensive because they have to be secure. You have to have sight lines. It has to be a place where there's no hooks. It's very, very expensive. Uh, so we have all of these things we got to get done, not just one thing. And, and fundamentally, I believe the state of Washington is, is, does, should not accept permanent encampments uh, in our neighborhoods, in our parks, in our schools, in our roadways. I don't think that's acceptable. And the only way to solve this is to make some investments, which I'm uh, proposing that the legislature make. I hope they get a giant forecast revenue in a couple of weeks. If that alleviates the need for a bond, that'd be great. I think it's unlikely, but one way or another, we've got to step up to the plate. Governor Jay Inslee talking to us live. Governor, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.